Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Tura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Each episode will feature a new guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. to have Brendan Bouchard on the podcast. Brendan is one of the most watched, quoted, and followed personal development trainers in the world, and possibly in the history of the world. Larry King named him one of the top motivation and marketing trainers in the world, and he is also a number one New York Times author, in which his books include The Motivation Manifesto, The Charge, The Millionaire Messenger, Life's Golden Ticket, and most recently, High Performance Habits, which we'll be talking a lot about today. He's the star and executive producer of the number one self-help show on YouTube, and his podcast, The Charge Life, debuted at number one on iTunes. Success Magazine named Brendan as one of the top 25 most influential leaders in personal growth and achievement, along with Oprah, Dr. Oz, and Sheryl Sandberg. Brendan, so excited to chat with you today. Man, I'm thrilled to be here. I'm a huge fan of your work and your podcast, so thanks for having me. Uh, likewise. Thank you. And congratulations on being on the cover of Success Magazine. I mean, that's like the ideal thing to show your mom. Right. Like, <laughs> like, like, like someday, someday I want to be on the cover of Success Magazine so I can really show my mom I made it. <laughs> you know, the funniest thing is when they sent me that cover. Yeah. Literally, that's probably the first person outside of my wife that I texted it to. I said, <laughs> Mom, look, check this out. And 
Of course, she's so she, you know, she's always been a huge champion and cheerleader for me anyway. And she's like, that's great, honey, you're so excited. But she would say that if, you know, it doesn't matter what's happening. Like, hey, mom, I'm doing a podcast today. That's great, honey, I'm so excited. You know, that's what moms do. (laughs) Well, it sounds like kind of like your personality too. Like when you're just imitating her, you sounded like yourself. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you realize that. I actually read, of course, the success article and they quoted your mom and I loved how they sought her out. And, you know, she said when you were a kid, you were this big energetic ball of sunshine sort of thing. And, you know, that clearly comes through in a lot of the work you do. And But that doesn't mean you haven't had a hard life. Now, what I've been reading some of your work, it suggests, so it says here you've been involved in car accidents, you've had to deal with brain injuries, you've had lots of other failures. Could you talk to me about some of that, Brendan? Yeah. You know, the whole reason that I got into psychology in the first place was because I was dissatisfied with my own life. Yeah. And that all perpetuated my entire career, in fact, perpetuated because when I was a 19 year old kid, I had a breakup with the first woman I ever loved. And she was, you know, my sweetheart, my everything. We were, the, we were like that annoying high school couple, <laughs> you know, like yeah. <laughs> so deeply and passionately in love. We shared like, you know, a U-Haul to the college we signed up for. And I only went to that college because she went there. You know, all our friends were there. We lived in the same dorm. We signed up for the same classes. I mean, we were just locked at the hip. And then about halfway through that first year of college, she cheated on me and I just fell apart. You know, I I like to say and tell people, it's like, you know, when all of your identity is tied up in a relationship and the relationship falls apart, so do you. Yeah. That's what happened to me. So by the end of that first year of college, I became depressed and then suicidal. And just a, a turn of events that fortunately gave me some reverence for life and some perspective right when I was in the deepest part of that depression and, and planning my suicide, not just thinking about it. I saw a full page ad in a school newspaper. I was still, you know, reading a lot and that, uh, reading has always been the saving grace of my life. And I was reading the school newspaper and there was a big ad, this big, beautiful ad. And it was an ad for a summertime job in the Dominican Republic. They needed students down there to be like tour guides. And long story short, I got the job. I went down there with a friend. And in our first couple of nights there was in a car accident. And I had these series of moments, sort of lots of people have been in car accidents and they know the slow motion thing happens. And if you're conscious anyway, and the slow motion thing happened and it made me ask and think about my life. Now, I don't know if in the moments I was so you know, cognitive and and thinking, oh, wow, you know, I'm facing the end of my life. Let me think through these main questions. But later, as I was healing, after I survived it, I realized the experience that I went through forced me in those moments later on to wonder if I'd really lived my life. And I hadn't, you know, my question, did I live? I hadn't been living. I've been thinking about taking my life. Mm. You know, did I love? No, my heart was so broken. And honestly, even in the relationship, I hadn't really been authentic in my love and caring because I was young and dumb. And, and, and did I matter was a question I asked. And, you know, I didn't really have a lot of direction. I certainly didn't know about these things we talk about so casually today, like serving leadership and volunteering and making a difference. And so the questions that I faced at the end of my life, did I live? Did I love? Did I matter? I was deeply unsatisfied with the answers. So I, like a lot of people, I go, well, after I recovered from the injuries, and was back in college, I wanted to live a better quality of life. I started asking, well, how do you live a good quality of life? How do I you change? And the irony is it began with, 
me, I got a hold of Success Magazine at some point. <laughs> Talk about coming full circle. I saw, you know, Tony Robbins on an infomercial. I picked up a book from Brian Tracy and Ogmandino and Paulo Coelho. And all of a sudden I started just a deep dive in the world of success and psychology and personal development. It was my first time reading Carl Rogers <laughs> and that totally changed my life. And then it was Alfred Adler and it went on and on and on. I just went deep into those things. And I, I was trying to search out how do I change my life? There was never any intention of like, I want to be a teacher on that someday. I just wanted to write my life. And then after I did, people said, hey, man, I remember last semester you were this depressed, sad kid, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and now you're happy. How did that happen? And I would just tell them the things I was discovering about, you know, beliefs and about identifying my values and what's important to me and having a vision for my future and understanding the importance of optimism and all the basic things we always talk about, psychology and personal development, I tell them, and I tell my car accident story in a, in a much longer fashion than I just did. And then they'd say, that's inspiring. You should tell other people about it. And that kind of began my real deep dive into the work and then ultimately in teaching it. Yeah. And am I right that the first book proposal you put forward to the publishers was rejected? <laughs> yeah, I would love to say it was rejected the way you pronounced it, kind of like a singular event. Oh, um, I see. <laughs> the book was Life's Golden Ticket, and it was a story about a person going through second chances because I wanted to talk about the psychology of change, but not be like, here's my story as Brendan Burchard. So Life's Golden Ticket is written a little bit like The Alchemist. It's a parable, and it's a story of a man undergoing dramatic change. I'd never written any fiction before. I didn't know what I was doing. And so 15 publishers turned the book down. Later on, literally after a book party from a book I had called The Millionaire Messenger that hit number one on New York Times, my agent pulled me over and we were talking and he told me it actually had been turned down 19 times, but he didn't have the heart to tell me about the four extra ones. (laughs) (laughs) Enough is enough. (laughs) And then he's like, okay, the kid gets it. It's not going to work. And and then HarperCollins called. And it was Harper One at the time. They had published Paulo Coelho. And it was Paulo Coelho's editor who saw the magic in it. And he said, actually, I think this has got a chance. And they believed in this young, dumb author who knew, had no idea what he was doing. And Last Golden Ticket sort of came out and began my career. Wow, it's amazing. You know, something tells me, though, you have such resiliency that even if that one didn't work out, you'd still somehow find a way to this pathway. You'd find other, other things to persevere. Man, I'd hope to think that, especially by that age, you know, I was 27 or eight by the time I wrote Life School, maybe 20, yeah, 28. And the truth is, I wouldn't have been if I hadn't read so much work in psychology and personal development, because those, those things taught me that resilience was important. Yeah. Because I think, honestly, if I hadn't read, you know, every personal development guy in history said, persevere, you know, that's like the oldest conversation in all of self-help is perseverance. And if I hadn't read it, I honestly, I think, I think before my car accident, I was a little bit of a quitter. And, you know, I don't mean that as if I'm, I don't understand any, uh, you know, like I feel bad about my identity, but, you know, I remember reading Albert Bandura and all his work on self-efficacy. And that was a huge shift in me. I mean, most of that stuff came out in the eighties and, you know, I was kind of coming into my own as a man after 2000. But reading Bandura, that was huge, the power of self-efficacy and believing in our ability to make things happen. 
and our confidence in our ability to achieve things and, and how we have to change our approach to achieving it, but still believing we can do it. And a lot of expectancy theory and these things, I got so wrapped up in it. I was like, yeah, man, that's what I want my life to be like, even though it wasn't like that. That's why I love psychology because it says, hey, maybe, maybe you don't think like this yet, but maybe you can start these thoughts because you'll feel better or you'll be better. And that's what really drew me to the work and ultimately teaching it. Mm, that's wonderful. And it also speaks to the power of these writings. You know, we write these books, we do this stuff, and we, we're like, man, are we going to have any impact? You kind of saw it on the other side first, that yes, this stuff can have an impact. I mean, it impacted you to have more efficacy, to keep trying. So that's really interesting to me. Yeah, I, I tell you, I didn't come out you know, being a, a self-help teacher. You know? right. I didn't start that until, you know, as a full-time career until I was like 32 years old, which even that sounds young to me now. But, you know, <laughs> it was because when I finished school and grad school, I finished grad school at University of Montana with a degree in organizational communication. I went to Accenture and it just happened to be, you know, I was telling these partners and these people at these Fortune 500 companies about my car accident and the meaning that I took from that as a gift, as a second chance, and how I decided to craft my life differently after that. And they were the ones, you know, when I'm quoting to them, you know, Earl Nightingale or, you know, Richard Carlson or, or, you know, Zig Ziglar, or I'm talking to them, you know, about Alfred Adler or Eric Fromm, they're like, you really like this stuff. You're really passionate about this. And, and your story could be inspiring. Like, go write a blog about it, (laughs) (laughs) you know, go do a video about it, go do a speech about it. And I had no, I was like, how do you do that? But so many people said that could inspire people that I got hooked on and I, I believed them. I, I don't know that I'd be here if people hadn't cheered me on. And also, I mean, I feel like there was a great amount of post-traumatic growth that happened for you. And that's, as you know, <laughs> a, a field of positive psychology. There yeah. are a few people who are able to kind of turn these traumatic experiences into a great source of meaning and put it into their creative work. So I feel like you keep channeling, like you keep doing it over and over and over again, book after book, day after day, YouTube video after YouTube video. I see you channeling all your energies. Actually, before I dive in, I want to talk about you. Do I live? Did I love? Did I matter? Could you unpack for me what it means to you to live? Yeah. I get the others. I totally get the others. But the first one can be a little ambiguous. I'd love for you to unpack it a little bit. Yeah. And I've been working on that for so long, even for myself. And I kind of came out with this little framework that helps me think through it, which I know this sounds very academic to say. It's like, well, I've got a framework about living, but... Yeah, but you know, I love that shit. Yeah. (laughs) You're talking my language. (laughs) Yeah. I think we all can... There's like three types of life. You know, I think there's the caged life, which is where I had lived when I was depressed. You know, when you're trapped in your own negative thinking, you're trapped in your own circumstances, or you're own trapped in your own boundaries of belief, or your own behaviors, and they're not working. You know, it's like literally being in a cage, you feel like you're shaking the bars, and you feel frustrated. And we've all been there at different parts of our life and in different areas of our life. But we know what that means when we feel trapped or caged. And then I think the a better quality of life certainly is the comfortable life, where you've got more options, more opportunity, more choice, and things are going good. You know, maybe you got the job or the car or the house and, and things are going pretty good. And I was there. That's what it was like when I had a corporate job after grad school. I was like, this is good. I was comfortable. I had a paycheck for the, you know, like a good one. You know, I was living an independent and free life. I mean, things were good and I was comfortable. But, you know, sometimes with the comfortable life, 
there's this tell that happens where you're out with friends and everyone's like, hey, how's it going? And you're like, you know, it, it's fine. And, and fine becomes this like four letter word. You know, it's like that, you know, that there's something more aching inside. And, and to me, that's the charged life calling you. And the, the charged life, it's just a higher level of enthusiasm and it's a higher level of engagement. And it's ultimately a higher level of empowerment with you and other people. And so I think when I think of when you say, did I live the way I evaluate it is, did I live my life fully and completely and honestly and vibrantly? And I measure that through my enthusiasm. Today, am I enthusiastic for this day and the opportunities I have? And I measure it through my engagement. Like, am I really deeply, not just passionate about what I'm doing? Am I a little obsessed? Because my philosophy in this book, a little bit from the study that we did on high performers worldwide, is they go a little beyond passion. And because, you know, passion is actually pretty safe. You know, people want you to be passionate. Oh, yeah. I have passion for pizza. Yeah, I know. (laughs) You know, live with passion, be passionate, follow your passions. All that's good. That, that's safe. But when you're passionate, people cheer you on. When you're obsessed, they caution you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they're like, hey, you know, you're, you're getting a little too much time for that here. Or why are you so weird? Or why do you care about that so much? And I found out high performers, they allow obsession into their life. They don't fear it as much as other people do because they figured out that healthy versus unhealthy obsession stuff. So for me, if I'm living life, really, the engagement isn't just like I'm present in the moment. That's everything too. But I also want to be obsessed with what I'm working on. Am I obsessed with the mastery and the excellence of it where I feel like that engagement level isn't just passion that comes and goes, but it's like, it's obsessions like excitement, enthusiasm, and deep engagement. And I don't know if that answers it completely, but that's how I feel as I'm talking it out with you. Oh, it sure does make a lot of sense. And you're bringing in some of those ideas about harmonious versus obsessive passion. Mm-hmm. but you're saying they're not scared of the obsessive passion. That's really interesting. I really like that kind of framing. They kind of embrace and accept their totality of being in a way. That's right. Oh my gosh, you nailed it. Because one of the habits, and we'll talk about the research behind it, I know, but one of the habits we found of high performers worldwide was their ability to raise performance necessity. And that just means they mentally sort of psych themselves up to be excellent at what they were doing because it's not a preference to do well here. It's a necessity. It's necessary that I do well here. And let me tell my brain why. And what one of the components of that bouncing up what you said in the way that they raise necessity is they literally attach their identity with doing well in that activity. And just like obsession, they got the guts to do that. It's scary. Like, you know, right before we started talking here, I was praising you for your guts and saying, hey, I'm a writer. And I had done that too. It's guts to say, to attach identity to our craft, because what if it doesn't go well? I mean, what does that say about us if my book gets, you know, declined from editors or it doesn't sell? Or what if someone says, you know, I'm going to be world class, you know, in this area or this topic, or I'm going to really put my passion behind this new small business and I am this person and it fails, that is a horrible thing on the identity, just like when I said my identity was wrapped up in that relationship with that girl I loved. Well, that's scary, except I found that every high performer that I did a structured interview with, which was over 300, they felt that, I mean, it was very clear that their identity was wrapped up in what they were high performing in, and whether they were a high performing mom, 
or they were a high-performing CEO at a Fortune 50 company, or they were both because that exists. And, you know, even my favorite story is uh, one of my favorite stories from the book is I was working with this gold medalist sprinter and we were at the blocks out on the track field and we were talking about his psychology right before the gun goes off to start the race. And he was talking about the importance of winning for him. And I said, well, how do you know if you're going to win? And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, like when you think of the competitors, all these folks in the lanes next to you, and you know, this race is going to be won by, you know, a hundredth of a second or a tenth of a second, let's say, how do you know who's going to win it? Who do you bet on? And he said, well, I would bet on the person who is down the blocks, looks up towards the end of the finish line and says, I'm going to win this one today for my mom. And I was like, (laughs) I was like, yes, you know, that's necessity. I have to do necessity is my identity is attached to it. I'm okay being obsessed with it. I'm doing it for a social duty or a purpose or a mission or even yes, an obligation beyond me. And there's a deadline. And if we get those things together, those four little things, identity, obsession, social duty, and deadline all together in your mind with the right thought patterns, you will feel that it is more necessary to perform with excellence than usual, and you will. That's really interesting. I, it's actually, I'm going to try to apply that tip next time I'm running on my Olympic track. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like asking yourself these questions, like, why is this important to who I am to do well? Yeah. Why do I love this thing so much, even when it's hard? Who needs me right now on my A game to perform well? Who needs me to do well at this? And why is it important that I do well at this now? Simple questions like that, you know, aims are mental focus, aims are ability to perform better. And as simple as those things are, it just turns out that high performers have that kind of mental pregame that allows them to perform better than the average person, even if the average person has a similar skill set. Because it's not always about expertise development. Sometimes it's about mental preparation. Sure. Yeah, this question, why do I love this, and it's tie into self-esteem is really, really important. And you know, I really like this distinction between optimal self-esteem and unstable self-esteem, which is, tends to be associated with some forms of narcissism. Yes. It's, and, yeah. you know, oh my gosh. And I love that because, you know, we've also, in so much of great self-esteem literature, we're cautioned against tying identity towards doing a good job. And that makes sense. I mean, you, you know, for me, one of the big books of my early life in psychology, one of the first psychologist besides like Maslow or Rogers that I really fell in love with was Nathaniel Brandon. And, you know, we just lost him. That was that two years ago? Yeah, uh, self-esteem. Yeah, the six pillars of self-esteem yeah. was a monster book for me. And, but even in that one, it, it, does, it does warn just, you know, and, and most psychologists would say just, you know, be careful of too much identity tied to because then if the external thing that you wanted doesn't turn out and you internally punish yourself, that's a good recipe for unhappiness, which they're true. But I'll tell you, high performers are willing to take that risk a little bit, just like you were with your blog saying, hey, I'm a writer. This is what I do. I'm sorry if you don't like it or I'm not going to respond as fast, but I'm going to pull myself away and, and put myself into this craft. Well, yeah, it sounds to me like what you're saying is, you know, contingent self-esteem is not good. But choose your contingency carefully. So, right. it, it, you know, it, overall, like you don't really want to be contingent too much on external validation. You know, you want to have, you want to be driven by intrinsic motivation. But 
it sounds like in certain instances, you know, there can be very healthy contingencies. So you're just basically saying choose your contingency carefully. That's absolutely right. And don't fear when a part of you, you know, feels like doing that thing. It's like, you know, Oprah knew that what she was doing was right for her. And she speaks so eloquently about it that she was doing who she is and what she felt called to do. And a lot of people back away from that higher sense of calling and identity because, you know, who am I or what will they say or how will I be judged? And I'll tell you, it's a lot easier to back away from that than to embrace it. You know, I share that not just from my own personal perspective, but a lot of people in the stories of this book, they struggled with that. You know, they really do. And I don't, I don't have the right answer, but the observation was pretty clear to me that they were willing to step over that line and say, this is who I am. Because they would of, often say when I interviewed them, you know, they would often say things like, I can't imagine myself doing anything else. Right. This is who I am. And man, when someone says that to me, I just want to double high five them and hug them because whatever it took to step into that took some guts. Oh, yeah. It takes a lot of bravery to be yourself. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the study. Something that I am very pleased to see is that this was put to some rigorous testing. You had a whole team of researchers. I'm just going to call out some names, some first names, Alyssa, Mike, and Danny. Yeah. Do, do those names ring a bell? <laughs> oh, yeah. They were absolutely huge. And and I'll just clarify a little bit because, you know, I think a lot of people, when they see a book, they think of a you know, they think of a research or a study as a singular thing. Like, you know, a lot of people say, well, you did this study. I'm like, well, we did studies, you know, because this book honestly is a culmination of the last 10 years of me studying everything I could about the high performers that we worked with, both from the, you know, the qualitative side of things as a high performance coach, as this is my career, to more quantitative based on taking surveys and based on sort of creating and validating now called the high performance indicator, yeah. at least three of this thing, which we validated other, we validated this performance scale against other validated scales to assess our predictive utility. You know, fancy way for everybody, you know, who's listening and fan of all this stuff. We kind of geeked out on the science of it. Oh yeah. My, my audience will love what you just said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. It was like, you know, three years ago, I didn't understand even what convergent validity meant. I had to conceptually understood, but I certainly had never executed it. And so doing that work and then trying to do the factor analysis and the component analysis, blah, 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 to make sure that what we were saying in this book wasn't just from my perspective of coaching, wasn't just, you know, my opinion, because I've been training on high performance also for a decade. And it wasn't just from my own literature views, which, you know, I've been doing for basically 20 years, reading everything I can in this topic. It was, hey, I want to be able to create a scale or what we now call the high performance indicator, I want to be able to create something that if I go into an organization, like we just recently did, we went to a large organization and we said, give us your top leaders and give us your average performers. And I want them to take the scale. Inevitably, the top leaders who have objective measures of success, their scores should be higher in these areas that we are saying correlate with long-term performance, specifically long-term success. And those who are average, well, their numbers should reflect that. And in, you know, area after area that we have tested this with, that comes to be true, that these six habits do correlate with long-term success. And, you know, we've gone through multiple versions of it, just like 
any good science. And we keep beating it up and we'll get it better and better and better. And when the book publishes, we're publishing our, our latest methodology report on the entire thing as well. And I could not have done that if it was not for Danny Southwick jumping in, especially him to help me make sure I was thinking through it right. You know, I have a master's degree, but I'm by no way a psychology PhD or a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a neurologist or anything with an ist at the end. (laughs) (laughs) Alyssa Mrazik, Mike, uh, Shannon Thompson jumped in there. And I had, you know, I've been blessed to train over 400 psychologists in high performance who attended High Performance Academy. And I beat this up against them. I said, hey, am I doing this right? Am I thinking about it right? Will you take the assessment? What other, you know, things should we run it against? And really long story short, we came down to, after measuring over 100 different performance variables throughout my last decade, came down to about 11 to 15 that seemed to be pretty strongly correlated with long-term success. Then we beat it up even more by asking, well, are these habits malleable? Are they trainable? Are they observable? Are they conscious? Are they things that high performers would say they are aware that they are doing and try to do better at? I think what makes this book unique is I wasn't going after you know, the same things a lot of habit writers have done in the past. They're trying to tell you how to set up a habit so it's easy and unconscious and you never have to think about it again, you know, like tying your shoes. Sure. But high performers don't, that's not what they're after. You know, they want to know what are the deliberate habits that I can do consciously and consistently to keep getting better. Because otherwise, it's an unconscious competence, and that's not going to take you to the top. So that's what this book is. It's it's six deliberate habits that we have both codified, figured out how to measure, objectively bounced against, you know, other things to get the predictive utility value, and then proven out in the field with GPA, with sales revenue numbers, with rank in position in hierarchy, and in multiple sort of external measures of success just to see, you know, to test our stuff. And so these six kind of made the grade. Yeah, I'd add some outcomes here that I see you measured that I care more about, like happiness and interpersonal relationship, quality of interpersonal relationships. You also predicted those two things. Yeah, I mean, high performance is a incredibly high predictor and correlate of happiness, of well-being measured as a multiple different types of scales of well-being as purpose in life, as liveliness, as achievement striving, diligence, industriousness. I mean, we were able to bounce against a lot of other things, but for me, I'm, I'm similar to you. Mine were, it's super highly strongly correlated with happiness, positive relationships, and what's important to me, influence. Because my number one struggle in, and what forced me to kind of want to write this book, honestly, was there so much done in psychology, but sometimes you just want, you know, psychology to walk across the hall to sociology a little bit. Yeah. Like, you know, my thoughts on grit or deliberate practice is usually to say, both of both, by the way, I'm a huge fan of both Angela and Anders, huge, huge. And I know you know them really personally. For me, sometimes I say, yes, but long-term success without, you know, you, you can say passion, perseverance, but if you don't have people skills in there, I know a lot of very passionate, persevering people because they're not good with people skill that they never broke through. I know a lot of people who deliberately practice and do you know, a version of it, let's say, and yet because they're bad with people, they piss off the coach and now they can't climb up on the team. 
they piss off the investors. Now the investors won't, you know, who funded them the first round won't fund them the second round. It's like our influence and our social circle is so much more important than, you know, grit or deliberate practice or even high performance alone. So I wanted to create a concept that measured that as well. And my theory was, or my hypothesis was, hey, I bet this is really important. So let's include it in there. And I think, especially in the corporate market, they're really going to like a book like this because it's, it, it's saying how important leadership really is. You know, Tom Brady can't be Tom Brady without leading that team. I don't care how good he throws that ball. I don't care what his grit is. If he doesn't lead that team well, he ain't Tom Brady. And so I think we nailed that. And that, to me, rose up out of the study. I didn't even know how important that one would be. So in terms of outcomes, it's correlation with influence, happiness, life satisfaction, all those. Those get me really fired up, you can tell. Yeah, yeah, I can. You know, let's, let's talk. Health. I'm sorry. And health. That's the last thing. Like, oh, yeah. Uh, health outcomes, which is huge. You know, high performers are somewhere of 40% more likely to work out three to five times per week than, you know, the average person. That's pretty extraordinary. 40%. You know, it's the health outcomes, positive health outcomes being associated with this too. I think that's important because I think the world's really struggling that, at least here in North America. Oh, yeah. Mental and physical health. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Can we talk about each of the five and I'll read like one item or from each of it? Because I, I imagine you wouldn't want me to read the whole scale, right? That's proprietary information. Is that right? Oh, no. Uh, yeah. Yeah. One item sounds great. And we can talk about each habit. Great. So let's start with clarity. I know what I want. I'm clear about my goals and passions. Tell me why that's important. It's important because we found that high performers, one of the first practices, each chapter is, is a habit. And then we break it down into three practices that we saw led to the development or the improvement of that habit. And one of their habits is to envision what we call the future four. And that is high performers tend to enter situations thinking through these four things themselves, like who do I want to be in the situation, their social context, as in how do I want to interact with people here, the skills or the strengths that they want to demonstrate in that situation or develop, and the service or the contributions they want to make there. So we call it self, social, skills, and service. And critical to that is the one you just read about is they're continually seeking clarity on who they are and what's important to them. And that's why they're able to adjust course or even stay resilient because they know what's important to them, which sounds so seemingly obvious, except that we're often told that we're supposed to get clarity. But high performers happen to be seekers. They seek clarity. They're, I mean, they're not the ones who evaluate their performance at, you know, on New Year's Eve only. You know? <laughs> they're not New Year's goal setters. They're very consistently seeking, is this right for me? Should I be doing this? Do I really care about this? Is this something that's going to, you know, lead to, you know, fulfillment for myself? So, you know, I know what I want. I'm clear about my goals and passions, but it's, you know, I know what will make me successful. I know how to achieve what's important to me. I have clarity about what I really want to accomplish in, in my life or in this context. It's really sitting and ruminating about that. Am I clear about what's important to hear? And coming back to Oprah again, and only reason I keep mentioning her is because you know, I'm blessed to work with her and we have a course coming out soon. It's my second Oprah.com course. And so it's on my mind. Every time we do, you do a meeting with Oprah, she has this thing. She says, 
what's the intention for this meeting? And she asked that at the beginning of every meeting. She always wants to know, what's the intention of this meeting? And that is a great example of seeking clarity. Before they enter situations, high performers are asking that type of question. They're trying to get more clarity as they are about to you know, begin something. Yeah, so that habit seems to I was because I was wondering where you bring in the purpose or the mattering part, and I see that is part of habit one. Uh, yeah, the, how do I matter in this situation? Yeah. The third practice is define what's meaningful, because you know I like to say not everything that's achievable is important. Yeah, <laughs> you know? no, for sure, brother, for sure. <laughs> There's a story in there in that in that uh, probably one of the most successful people I ever coached myself personally. You know, as a woman in Fortune 500, had 10,000 employees under her direct report. And we were talking about something, and she kind of gave me that language in her own dialogue. She was realizing that she'd climbed a lot of mountains, but many of them were the wrong mountains. Mm. And so I tell people all the time, it's not always achievement that you're, you, you think that you're after more achievement, but, and we all really do believe that in some ways. But a lot of people are good at checklists and to-do lists. And they got the great planners. And they really are good at knocking off the tasks and the activities on a work plan. But for many people, achievement is not the problem. Alignment is. Yeah, and that brings to me lots of ideas of authenticity. So I think that habit one, I would put authenticity as, as part of that. It sounds good. And I may, in fact, do that when I write for your site. <laughs> yeah, you know, we, we ask this too. You know, part of that is we give a lot of questions in here to ask to kind of aim yourself. And one of the seeking clarity questions is, how can I make this effort personally meaningful to me? And I think that's important. I, I recently had a, a team member who, on, in one of my companies who we let go. And in the sort of the debrief process of letting this person go, we had this conversation and they, you know, they said, well, I just, you know, I was doing a lot of things that sometimes it just wasn't meaningful. And I'm like, we're changing people's lives. Oh my God. You know? <laughs> But it's like that person, like, look, I do email too, you know, I do social media too. I've got to do a lot of menial tasks, but I make them meaningful to me by seeking clarity on what that meaning could be. And that's why I'm able to stay in the game longer than a lot of people would quit by getting bored. Yeah, that's great. Okay, so let's move on to habit two, which is energy. So one item would be like, I feel highly energized every day. Now, I imagine you don't treat these six as completely independent of each other, right? But as, as kind of feeding off each other, right? Like the more clarity you have, the more energy you have for the task, right? Or the more energy you, you right? So these kinds, would you agree they feed off each other? They do. And, and in our very first methodology report, we found that it was cool that each of these habits correlated strongly with long-term success, but they each actually correlated with strength in one another too. They were distinct enough you know, to pass the test of distinction and differentiation. But yeah, the more clarity you have, the odds are the more energy you have because you won't be wiped out doing things you hate, <laughs> you know? And combined, all six also added up to a total higher score in high performance, which is kind of how we started drilling down on which ones mattered the most. But yeah, generating energy is everything because I think, especially today, this is going to be a popular habit and chapter because a lot of people... They feel like the energy that they're experiencing in life is just energy they have or do not have. You know, similar to lots of people who might think, well, I'm happy or I'm not happy. And as if, you know, there's no will component there, you know, or no ability to raise 
those numbers or those feelings or those sensations consciously. And our energy that we are experiencing mentally, emotionally, and physically is under a great degree of our command. And when we discover how much that is, now we really want to optimize our health. Now we want to bring more intention and joy to experiences. Now we want to learn, and this is my favorite phrase from that chapter, is release tension, set intention. And that is, you'll dig on this. I think a lot of people are going to cover this. When I studied how high performers, why is it they didn't burn out? It was weird. They're more successful, but they perceive that they have less stress than their peers. And I thought, well, is it just because they, you know, are more confident in handling stress? They've done it before, or they seem like maybe their peers are running around crazy. I'm like, what? why is it that they report less stress than others? Like, what was it? And so when I started getting the structured interviews and in conversations, it wasn't that they were using less energy throughout the day. And it wasn't that they had less tasks that demanded all of them or could be stressful. It was they had this practice of renewal in their transitions. They had what we now call master, they mastered transitions. So I'll give you a great example. It's very tactical. You and I do it every day, probably. You know, there's a transition moment between answering emails and opening up Keynote to make a presentation. What most people do is they're bleeding energy, mental focus energy, if you will, um, and also physical energy in their kind of sort of tractoring through their transitions without releasing the mental focus from one to enter the next one. And what I found, for example, a high performer, instead of just, you know, doing email, immediately opening the presentation, work on the presentation, they would finish email. And they would do something casual that they didn't know they were doing at the time. They'd get up, they'd walk around the office, say hi to some people, get some water, maybe stretch a little bit, ah, sit back down and start the next activity. And they had all these little renewal practices between activities, not like they took a a, a walk at lunch, though a lot of them did stuff like that. It was between the activities of the day where they refreshed themselves mentally, emotionally, or physically before entering the next activity. It's the person before walking into the meeting or their fifth meeting, I should say, they go to the bathroom, they, you know, splash a little water on their face, do a couple jumping jacks, then walk into the next one. Or it's the person who they pull up to their house from a long day of work. And before going in to say hi to their honey, they just close their eyes and release tension with maybe a, you know, a 60 second or five minute meditation. Then go in intentionally on what kind of mom or dad they want to be. I like that. Yeah, it was, I don't know how to describe it other than they mastered these transitions and they're like little transitions. They're not these big ones at the beginning or at the end of the day necessarily. They're like throughout the day, they're doing these little renewal periods that all culminate to their ability to recharge throughout the day, not just that one time in a meditation or at the very end, you know, or during that one time at lunch. It's lots of little renewals that keep them recharged. And we talk about a lot of those in the, in the book. And that was for me, I learned a lot in that. And just observing, I was like, wow, I got to start doing a better job at that. So now between major activities, I, I go and my routine is I'll go and drink a glass of water. I'll bounce in place and take 10 deep breaths while bouncing in place. Not like jumping, but just like sort of a Qigong bounce, like a Tai Chi bounce. <laughs> just loosening the shoulders, letting my body bounce up and down, breathing 10 times in and out. And then I'll go to the next activity. 
and I've entered way more present, way more focused, and I feel like my performance went up too. So this, you know, makes me think of Andre Erickson's work showing that the highest performers in his sample didn't necessarily have the more quantity of hours, but they were more efficient and they also rested the most as well. So mm-hmm. this seems to dovetail nicely with that kind of finding. It does, yeah. So like that. So there's an efficiency here. The efficiency of your time seems to be somehow related to this energy managing. It's like managing your energy, your ability to manage your energy, not necessarily as a trait. Like I either have a lot of energy or not, because you find extroverts have, on average, more energy than introverts. And I would hate for this these habits to be all about extroverts. You know? That's right. Yeah. So, so and that's what we're, we're happy with. And the habits didn't correlate with a traditional perspective, I should say, in personality. And there's a study in here that we cited as well for you know some 900 CEOs. There wasn't a huge difference in extroverts versus introverts in terms of their performance over the long term. And I know we, there, there's a lot of debate about that, certainly in academic circles. There's very little debate about that, by the way, in high performance circles hmm. in terms of like corporate practitioners. Because, you know, anyone who's done a lot of work has seen lots of introverts crush it and lots of extroverts crush it, you know, and it's really about the mindset and the routines and the habits that, that are happening to support that person. And I think that's what you said is a really important distinction, because the reason I said when we label the habit generate energy is because they are consciously doing that. It doesn't say, you know, have energy by trait or birth. It, you know, it right. says there are these activities that they are doing that just they're doing it more consciously and consistently than other people and that's giving them the edge absolutely so let's talk about the next one because i know that you have a life too so you don't want to spend the rest of the day oh man you know i dork out about this with your brother i could say you 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 keep me on time because i'll go on and on but (laughs) (laughs) so I, i will so the next one is let's talk about necessity that's an interesting phrasing that's kind of a unique phrasing right when i look at these items they seem to have a lot to do with grit and working hard and having the motivation, the ability to self-generate motivation in a way. But tell me why you called it necessity. It's very interesting. The first time I ever had a, a real touch of real sort of academic approach to organizational communication, a lot of the work we were doing there was more ethnographic. And I was very interested to see how do high performers actually talk about it? And what are the things that they say that gives them the edge? And a lot of them, if you go in and you ask a bunch of high performers, like, hey, why are you so good at what you do? They almost laugh. And a lot of them say things like, I don't have any other choice, man. (laughs) It's like, it's, it's not like what we want it to be for a nice, you know, for a great TED talk, like purpose and meaning and amazing. A lot of some, that's there, no question. But a lot of times it's just like, I have to get myself primed to do a good job here or the competitors are going to eat my lunch or that new young hire is going to outpace me or, you know, my family is going to be left struggling. And for them, it wasn't just like, at first time we wanted to call this like, is this, this is like emotional commitment, right? And so we want to call it emotional commitment, but looking through the transcripts and in the different ways we had to figure out how to do the first measurement of the first HPI, it was like, no, this is, it is, they feel it's necessary for them to do well. And it's not always just the internal standards of, you know, my identity or my beliefs or my purpose. It's sometimes those external ones, the social obligation or deadline. Like, I don't know about you, but 
dude, a deadline makes it necessary for me to get that book done. As soon as you give me a deadline, my output per hour kicks up. That's so interesting. Yeah, so do you think there's individual differences in that? Do you think there's some people where a deadline really um, crushes their spirit? Uh, I think it ends up being down to, in the book we call it, real deadlines versus false deadlines. You know, What's that difference? That's interesting. Yeah, well, you and I were kind of joking about this at the beginning. Like, you know, We get a lot of requests, and we're blessed to have that. Yeah. But I get a lot of requests. Brendan, I need this by Thursday, by Friday, da 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 And I have this reply that I send almost anybody who sends me a request because they're usually asking me for it by a certain time. And I say, hey, thanks for, for this. Could you write me an email back and explain when is the absolute drop-dead date and time you need that in which if you don't get it by that date, the world explodes, <laughs> your career crumbles, my reputation is ruined forever, and a series of negative consequences upon which there is no hopeful return occurs. Please let me know that date because every day before that is called a preference. And honestly, before you wrote me, I got hundreds of preferences in front of you. So the only way I can possibly sort this oh, that's good. is by knowing oh. the real deadline. <laughs> right? You're so good. You're good, I'll Brendan. I'll send you the email. I'll send you the email. <laughs> you're, Brendan, you're good. That's influence. That's uh, influence ability. I would put that under that habit. That's very good. That's very good. Uh, yeah, I, I changed my uh, contact form to just due to the high volume of commitments I receive. I'm not just I'm just simply not taking on any more commitments till next year because I need to in order to help people maximally. I need to focus on what I'm currently doing as opposed to spread myself too thin. That's what I wrote. But I yeah. I feel like I guess they're just different approaches to this. You know, uh, it's easy to get overwhelmed, and that's a that's an incredibly gracious way to respond, Brendan. Incredibly gracious. Yeah. Well, because you know it ends this way, and it basically ends with you know. Can you please let me know that drop-dead date and why it specifically occurs then for you? What if you honestly like read the request and you just don't want to do it though? Like I'm saying like, yeah. what's your rejection for that? You can't do everything in life. No. Yeah. Very similar to what you, would, what you just described that you wrote is that I'm very focused on this particular project right now. If it's not an emergency or a real deadline, please you know, take this action or, you know, defer it. But I have that type of thing as well. Our no is very gracious. And I talk about this in the book in the productivity habit is that the ability to say no first after you've achieved a certain level of success is important. And to convince yourself about why you would say yes, I like that becomes now the game. You know, that makes so much sense. Yeah. Yes. Gets you in the game and then no keeps you at the top levels of the game. So when you're, you know, when you're in your 20s, you say yes to everything because you're just trying to get influence and experience, find out what your thing is, you know, help people. And then, then at some point, if you're responsible for the, you know, the powers that you have developed, however you define that, then you have to now start prioritizing. And the way to do that is to immediately start with no and then justify to yourself why that should be prioritized up for you to even, you know, take it on. Mm, my friend Ryan Holiday actually wrote a really good article about why he says no to everything. Very similar to what you just said. I really like that. It's one of those things, though, when you say that too much, though, people think you're kind of a jerk. <laughs> because especially people who don't know what it's like to receive a million requests, right? you, yeah. you can come across as kind of thinking you're better than others when that's not what it's about at all. You know? No, here's the good news. I've got the, you know, sort of the scientific answer for that a little bit. 
And that is, uh, so our next habit, the fourth habit is to increase productivity. Yeah. And here's how high performers did it. You can't possibly write a, an action-based sort of business-oriented book without having, you know, stupid acronyms. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> Well, my, my colleague Martin Seligman is the master of that. And, uh... Oh, right. It's true. <laughs> um, so this one, uh, or, or just, you know, some alliteration or some type of, you know, this one is just like, here's what we found. Fancy phrases, you get the idea and why high performers became that way. The first thing they did is they identified that what we call their PFI, their primary field of interest. And that was a big thing. And they all talked about the day when you discover the primary field of interest that's real for you versus the busy work, right? Because there's a difference between busy work and your life's work. And when people hone in on what the real primary field of interest is for them, things really shift. But then they went to another level deeper. And they identified their PQO, which is the sort of the abbreviation for prolific quality output. And they identified in that primary field of interest in which they want to be recognized, received, rewarded, or dedicate their life to because it's their calling. They identified the primary and the quality outputs they would have to create in which they would have to be prolific. And when they made the shift, and this is an obvious and very clear shift that every high performer I talk with. When I talked about, because I asked questions like, tell me about a time when you shifted into the highest gear of performance in your life. What changed then? So many of them, you know, when they finally dug down and we really got to the question, the essence of the question, they would discover, oh, well, I realized that my craft was this and I was really going to aim that. Just do that. Or, you know, it's a story in in the world of Steve Jobs coming back to an Apple when it's floundering and saying, hey, you guys got too many product lines here. We're only going to do these things, primary fields of interest, yeah. and we're be prolific in creating this type of output, the highest level of quality in this way, and be more prolific in creating more of them than anybody else ever. And it's like high iPod, iPhone. And it's just over and over and over, you know, whether it's, you know, some sports people identifying that specific sport and the wins that they need to climb the national rankings on or the worldwide rankings on, or it's you know, a, a musician, whoever it is, those two things, when those align, you figure out that primary field of interest, and then you figure out the prolific quality output, and then you identify, and this is the hardest part that we're really talking about, you identify the rest as distractions towards your ability to do PQO. So it sounds like a lot of like deep focus. Deep focus added with deep courage and the ability to say no to things that are great. So I see lots of things there. Boundary setting, the importance of boundary setting, importance of prioritization, time management, all that stuff is, is kind of folded under productivity. Is that right? Yeah. And you know what I think the distinction is, is that you and I say things like that, you know, to, especially when, you know, I'm speaking around the world, people, their eyes can glaze over when, it's, <laughs> when you say boundary setting or time management or increasing productivity, but then you bring it back to that sense of self-satisfaction and meaning that comes from having a sense of personal power and focusing your life on things that matter to you. And the guts to do that, the guts to say no to the things that don't matter to you is a defining hallmark of high performers. But I also say just, you know, the good life. I mean, there's so many things that you and I get requests to that would be so amazing to go and do. By the way, I recognize it's difficult to make a distinction of saying yes and no between two good and two bad things is easy. It's when you have a lot of good opportunities that it gets yeah. harder. And I don't pretend to be the guru on that. I would recommend everybody read Rushworth Kidder's work. 
he's pretty much the preeminent ethics trainer worldwide. Most of the Fortune 100, good or bad, um, took his ethics training. And he wrote a book called How Good People Make Tough Decisions. And all listeners should listen. If you're going to read High Performance Habits, awesome. Complement it with that book because it will help you make those right choices for you and the others that you lead and serve. That's great. Thank you for that recommendation. We'll try to put that in the show notes. Oh, cool. In the instance of time management, <laughs> we talked about influence already. We touched upon that. One of the items is I'm good at persuading people to do things. I'll be honest with you, I'm a little critical of this one because mm-hmm. these kind of items are actually very correlated with grandiose narcissism. I mean, these things are right out of the MPI as well. I have strong leadership skills. People describe me as highly influential, but the other two. How do you distinguish this from you know, manipulative exploitation? Sure. Well, first, the one you're counting on is our most recent methodology report for the... That's right, yeah. For the academic version versus the one that informed a lot of the book. Oh, okay. Um, That's good information, actually. Cool. Yeah, yeah. This one was to... The one you're reading is the methodology report to kind of run this against other validity, uh, other scales that have been validated. So to your point, that one does have that theme and style of that work before it, um, because we wanted to assess whether that's true or not. The actual HPI, which is, you know, five times longer than one you're reading there. The professional assessment version is much more, there's a lot more under the influence related to empathy. Oh, that's good. That's very good. Yeah, I'll send you the full one. Please do. Please do. The ability to, for example, the one you don't see in there because it was, again, this was a validity report. The actual assessment has, for example, the ability to garner trust, to Mm. create camaraderie, less oriented towards those ones. Unfortunately, just that traditionally most of the items in order to sort of assess the predictive validity of this, we had to bounce it against things that had been correlated with success specifically. And that one, I agree with you. You know, I'm good at persuading people to do things. I haven't met a high performer who wasn't good at persuasion, but they weren't also using it just to, you know, right. That, that really has a very instrumental feel to it. Yeah, right. It's not. Really it's not agree. consistent with your love thing. So that's why. Yeah. That's why high performance habit number five is called develop influence. Gotcha. And the three practices that we found that develop it is number one, teach people how to think, and that is you have to consistently say, "What do you think about this?" Or, "Hey guys, let's think about it this way." When you want to influence people, you're helping shape their thoughts, and you're also asking for it. How would you think about it? How would we go about it? Number two is they challenge people to grow. And so influencers... Ooh, I like that one. Yeah, they, they, they challenge people's character. They challenge people's connections, their relationships. They challenge people's contributions. And it's in challenging that they gain influence. You know, challenging can be like persuading. It can sound very instrumental, you know, but it's the way that you use it. And, it's you know, totally, persuasion yeah. can be a positive tool or a negative tool. And uh, frankly, so can leadership and so can productivity, right? All these things. I mean, honestly, grit can be a terrible thing as well. You know, I don't know. Oh, yeah. No, it's true. No, it's very (laughs) true. Actually, I modify what I said. A lot of these items, it's not necessarily grandiose narcissism, but the assertiveness aspect of extroversion, you would find lots of these kinds of items, you know, like I'm really good at persuading people and having them do what I want. And I'm very effective at telling stories and et cetera, et cetera. So you see a very strong link between extremely high levels of assertiveness and grandiose narcissism, which I find really interesting. Oh, dude. And you know what the coolest thing is? Man, you're good. 
assertiveness did not strongly correlate with high performance overall scores. Are you talking about it, with the larger test battery or uh, with this one? Because with this one, I mean, these it has to. These items are straight out of the assertiveness rule book. That's right. Yeah. These ones in your scale, yeah. the, the one, yeah. the ones that I'm talking about is when we asked the survey to high performers. Okay, good. Like empathy, them, ability to garner trust, that kind of stuff? Uh, yeah, the, the actual, the, I'll give you the, the actual item is, the actual item was, I am more assertive than my peers. High performers didn't strongly, they don't feel like they're more assertive than the average person. Even if, and for me, I think persuasion or leadership and even the ability to describe myself as highly influential as an example, I think in real life language, and I think this is where obviously methodology comes into play and academics and science is where the meaning is important. Like, you know, our next, our last habit is demonstrate courage. Mm. It was so hard to find a lot of strong agreement on what courage was in the academic science. You know, it's difficult. There's not a lot of people who agree on exactly what courage really means if we're going to measure it. I feel the same way in the popular culture. If you say assertiveness to somebody, uh, a psychologist thinks of that in very different way than a, a Fortune 50 executive. How does a Fortune 50, how do they think of it? They would associate even more with what I would lead towards demonstrating courage in the sense of oh. I stand up for myself, I speak up for myself. I am willing to push my ideas even when other people are pushing back. I think that's how psychologists conceptualize as well, but we're talking about the extreme high ends, you get dominance. That can easily turn into dominance if it's too high. Uh, good point. Absolutely. So maybe, you know, for some of these things, maybe there's a golden mean. Mm-hmm. I think so. I think that's a good point. My sense about the matter is that language really matters in self assessments. And I think people would, you know, if I'm filling out something, and then this is just always going to be a part of self-assessment when an individual is filling it out for themselves, you know, when they say, if I read, I'm good at persuading people to do things, you know, I might, yeah, if I read, I'm more assertive than others. I mean, I don't want to be like, you know, I don't want to, yeah. you know what I mean? It's a, yeah. So it's, it's how they might be identifying in that particular item I referenced with the assertiveness. So cool. part of this was just figuring out the right words. Sounds good. I don't want to harp on that. Um, no, I love it, man. This is actually, I love this stuff. Let's go to the last one. Of course, you talked a little about courage. To me, a lot of these items have to do with resiliency, the ability to, to fall back, to get back from setbacks. This one is, is assertiveness, though. I speak up for myself even when it's hard. That's assertiveness. That's pure assertiveness. Yes. So that's interesting. I anticipate the new situation. Oh, wait. I'm sorry. I don't, I don't want to read them out loud. I, this is proprietary. Yeah, so that's cool. So tell me a little bit more about courage and would you link that a little bit to post-traumatic growth as well? You know, I haven't studied that link. I would guess it'd be true. I mean, my God would say yes. I haven't studied enough about post-traumatic growth to know all of the levers there. My guess would be, yeah. But I think what we found here that was really important was the ability to respond quickly made the difference for high performers. That, you know, it's easy to avoid for something for so long that performance declines. And we found this with people, for example, who ran organizations who, you know, they would talk about a period of years, they knew there was a problem, but they kept waiting, you know, well, when we get some new hires, we'll fix that. Or we found entrepreneurs, yeah, I knew the process didn't work, but I, you know, I, I, I thought the customers weren't that bothered by it. And they waited too long to face 
a challenge or an emergency. And that really hurt their performance. And yet we also found that there was that part of that assertiveness that says, hey, despite that, I'm going to face it. Well, we did find a lot of agreement in the academic literature about courage is that they were willing to take action, usually for a moral or what they sense is a higher reason in the face of fear, uncertainty, judgment, rejection, threat. Taking that action despite those things is what qualified as courage in both the eye of the beholder and those who viewed them. And we found that to be true. And one of the other elements that was so powerful about their ability to demonstrate courage was that they spoke up not just for themselves, but they also spoke up for other people when they saw a wrong or when someone smashed down someone's ideas that they would say, well, hold on, that was a good contribution. That's scary. I mean, we all, everyone's listening has had, had that point in their life when they were in a meeting and they wanted to speak up for somebody, but they didn't and they regretted it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it was, we know that high performers would on average more likely to step into that and say something. I like that one a lot. So look, Brendan, I want to thank you for really making contact uh, with the research community and really caring about getting the science right and, and validating the ideas. You're a very rare, rare breed in your <laughs> field. And I mean that, I think we could scientifically prove that's true. Like, I'm not just like, that's not just my opinion. Like, you look at the hundreds of thousands of books on the self-development bookshelf in the bookstore, and I want to roll my eyes at a lot of them because uh, they're just armchair theorizing. So thank you for really taking that care. I, I think that I'm not sure if, if even your audience is fully aware of that fact. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. You know, it, it was helpful to have the audience because, you know, when I, I started, I've been teaching High Performance Academy, it's a four-day seminar on some of this stuff, what, seven, no, gosh, nine years ago, something like that. And it was great because maybe it was my second one. And it was a little armchair theorizing from what I'd been through or how I'd coach people, but I didn't have, you know, the literature review or any empirical work behind it yet. And, and a person came up to me and they said, you said this on stage, Brennan, how do you know it to be true? And I wasn't even satisfied with my own answer. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good question. <laughs> yeah, I thought, you know what? I'd better dig into this even more. And hopefully one day, you know, if I read and study enough, I can learn how to do these types of things and find the right partners and friends to, to contribute and write. And, and I'll also acknowledge, you know, everything I said here, uh, you know, what, one part that I do think makes me unique is, you know, a lot of people who want to be the guru and have the 100% certainty. I mean, I opened this book, you know, after talking about sort of the method we went about it with probably what, I don't know, seven, eight paragraphs of saying, hey, we've also tested to see if this isn't true. And I'm sure we're at the tip of the iceberg because there's so much we don't know about high performers yet. Because I feel like this is relatively an emerging field still, at least in the way we think about it in, in my genre. So I feel like we're learning so much. And so I'm also hoping that a lot of the academic or even the more professional communities who are the practitioners in the high performance specifically, contribute ideas, blogs, articles to us, because one of my goals at High Performance Institute is to learn. I mean, that's one reason you and I got to connect, because I'm going to learn so much from you. And I don't think any science is ever done, you know? And I think it's always just learning finer ways of replicating or breaking it down or expressing it to find out what's more and more true or likely. But you know, I think we're all going to be a student in this game for a long time. Well, I think that what you just did suggests you should add one more habit of humility. 
<laughs> What's wrong with you know? You you see a lot in the high performance domain. It's just so much about overconfidence and and crushing it. And with what you just said, it was a great example of humility. And I, I just hope that you incorporate that somewhat in your models of high performance. Matter of fact, it's in the what we call the high performance traps. It's in the last chapter, one of the last chapters of the book. We talk about the three things that ruin that's right performance over the long term. And number one, the number one thing was superiority. Yeah, yeah. And I like that. I like that. Yeah. And then they're now going a whole tirade in there about humility, uh, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because... I, I, I questioned myself. I'm like, if I take on superiority, does it make me sound superior? You know? <laughs> <laughs> it was a trick as a, as a writer to make sure I wasn't you know, doing that. So. <laughs> do, you mean, do you mean if you like say that you're like the most at humility? Is that what you're saying? Or, <laughs> or, or just saying people who are superior are wrong. You know, <laughs> it's oh. like... Well, you know, but (laughs) it was one of the huge, huge lessons because I I really believe that when we interviewed high performers and asked them when they had a a period of, we asked them, say, three to five years, she were on a roll and suddenly that roll or that hot hand ended, like what led to that that was in your direct control and was a part of either your psychology or your relationships and and the, the three traps that we talk about are beware superiority, beware dissatisfaction, and beware neglect. And that second one is so important to me, dissatisfaction, because to your point, so much of the you know overconfidence or hustle and grind stuff is, you know, you're supposed to, you know, in the old phrase of, of you know, grin and bear it. And just we found that strivers and or high performers, they're not striving dissatisfied that they actually do have a level of satisfaction consistently throughout the journey. And it is that satisfaction that enables them to access things like, you know, presence or gratitude or flow or being in the zone. And it's not just grin and bear, horrible, you know, work yourself to the grind nonsense. You know, it's actually high performers. The reason they're high performing is because they're enjoying the process and they're honoring the struggles that come up versus fighting them. And it's that enjoyment of the process that allows them access to higher performance. So important. Such an important point because, you know, we find in our own research that perfectionism is like one of the strongest correlates of grandiose narcissism, which is, you know, what you would call superiority. So they're linked. They're very much linked. Like those with a superiority complex are really, really hard and perfectionistic on others as well as themselves. And they don't know that if they kind of relax those external standards a bit, they would actually get better performance. So I'm really glad that you include that as a trap. Well, thank you so much for being so gracious with your time. And I wish you all the well with your book and with this model. Thank you, my friend. I loved it so much just talking with you. And I know I'm going to learn so much from you and continue to listen to the podcast. So thanks for having me on. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. I hope you found this episode just as thought-provoking as I did. If something you heard today stimulated you in some way, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. 
Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love Love at at First first listen. Listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right. 